Hello and welcome to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. This is episode 15 of the most influential weekly podcast to come out of the Saskatchewan business community. On each episode, Paul Martin, business commentator and the chair of Martin Charlton Communications brings us the stories behind the headlines and explains why each story matters to you. On today's episode, part two of this four-part series on agriculture and a question. Have you ever been in a meeting and not realised its importance until 10 years later? Well, this is the story of that very conversation and its impact here in Saskatchewan. Paul, I'm intrigued. What was this conversation? Yeah, it's a, this is a cool one. You know, it, it, we talked earlier about uh, the big trend, not wanting to uh, miss the big trend. And to actually, you know, I think the reason for our conversation was to encourage people to dig a bit deeper and think beyond the actual set of events that's going on and look at what does this mean in context. So this is a, another example of one that I experienced. And this goes back quite a ways, actually. It was um, 1984. And so let me set the stage for you. Uh, this was a uh, one of the things that we're talking about in this four-part series about agriculture is uh, much of it has to do with the relationship between Saskatchewan and, and in particular, China, uh, which is one of our major customers for agricultural output. So 1983, uh, China was about three or four years into what they called the Great Leap Forward, where they were opening up. They had been uh, a kind of a closed country prior to that. We used to talk about something called the Bamboo Curtain, which was... Uh, an Asian version of the uh, the Iron Curtain that was uh, uh, sort of the centerpiece of the Cold War. Well, uh, when they opened up, they, of course, were looking to create linkages around the world. And so they, they signed these twinning arrangements as a mechanism for hooking stuff up. We talked about the, the one last in the last episode about Vancouver and, uh, and Guangzhou. Well, on this one, We'll talk about Saskatchewan and its sister province of Jilin, which is uh, a province in northeast China. And uh, so uh, in 1983, a year before uh, what we're going to talk about today, uh, Grand Divine was the premier of the day. He went over and uh, signed an accord with his counterpart in Jilin to create a uh, foster a political relationship between Saskatchewan and Jilin. And uh, subsequently, the next year, uh, uh, an economic, a business delegation went from Saskatchewan. So first step was to go over, sign the political accord, create this relationship. The next uh, step was to send over Saskatchewan business people and to try and create some linkages there. So I was uh, lucky enough to be a reporter to travel along with that. The deputy premier led it and there was about nine or 10 Saskatchewan business people on it. And uh, they were forging all kinds of partnerships, relationships, meeting people, what have you. And uh, I was quite taken by the process. So the following year, I came back. And uh, after we had come back, I I'd approached a few business people in the province. Uh, uh, Grant Gayton, who was running a company called MSL at the time, which was a computer company. Uh, there was Milt Fair, who was the CEO of Saskatchewan Wheatpool, and uh, Boyd Robertson, who was the head of the Royal Bank in Saskatchewan, but uh, he was also the president of the Saskatchewan Chamber. So I talked the three of them into going back into China and allowing me to go along uh, with TV cameras. So CTV at the time, CTV Saskatchewan, 
uh, had agreed to allow me to do a documentary on the following of three Saskatchewan business people going into China and meeting with their counterparts over there and to opening up this relationship between Saskatchewan and Jilin. So the deal I made with these players was you set up the meetings um, and I will film them or we will uh, have the cameras rolling in there. Then after the meeting, we'll go out into the parking lot of that business that we were meeting with and I will interview you and you'll explain to me the significance of the conversation. What did that exchange between you and your Chinese counterpart really mean and what was the potential and prospects for it going forward? So we did some of the meetings. Most of them were in Jilin, but we did have a couple of stops along the way. Uh, We started in Beijing. And so the one in Beijing is the one I want to talk about, which is, of course, the Chinese capital. And it was uh, Milt Fair from the Saskatchewan Wheat Pool. So this was pretty big stuff, right? He had uh, gotten a meeting with the chief grain buyer for all of China. Now, if you stop and think about that, that person probably has as much influence on the Saskatchewan economy as just about anybody, certainly back in those days, as are one of our biggest customers, if not the biggest uh, customer who had this decision-making. So for me, as the reporter, I was pretty pumped about the prospect of this meeting. I mean, we had the camera set up and and uh, you know, we're in one of those classic Chinese meeting rooms. We're on one side, they're on the other. We're all drinking tea. And uh, so anyway, we're sitting there and, uh, and I'm looking forward to quite a significant exchange and uh, getting some insight into, you know, how the decision-making process is done on the Chinese side. And, you know, is there something we knowledge we can impart to farmers back here that will help them improve their business performance? Anyway, we're sitting in the meeting and it's delayed. It's delayed. The chief grain buyer from China is late. And, um, you know, we're kind of like cooling our jets, waiting for him to show up. All of uh, his support team was all there, and uh, you know we were all exchanging pleasantries and drinking tea, but uh, the big guy hadn't arrived. And then all of a sudden, he blew into the meeting, and he sat down, and this is the exchange. He looked at Milt Fair from the wheat pool, and he said, thanks for coming. It's been a long time since I've seen a representative of the grain producer. and got up and walked out. And the meeting was so short my cameraman actually didn't even have time to roll and catch uh, the the bulk of the exchange. I, it was just that quick. And so the meeting was over. Uh, no kidding. It was less than a minute. And uh, so we all packed up our stuff and went out to the parking lot. And I said to Melt, okay, let's do the interview. And he looked at me and he said, I can't. I, I've got to digest this. So it was a week later, we were driving around, we had gotten up into northern China, and we were driving around, we stopped on a roadside and actually had a, a, a farmer's field in the backdrop to do the interview, and uh, it was still hand labor in those days, it was really quite a remarkable backdrop, and, uh, and so the context of this meeting was one that, um, you know, the debate was going on in Saskatchewan about the future of grain marketing. It was in the hands of the Canadian Wheat Board, owned by the government. Uh, There was great resistance to it, particularly among more aggressive, uh, progressive farmers. And uh, the Wheat Pool, uh, as a co-op and the political entity, had been very much in the Wheat Board's camp. So the Wheat Pool was quite supportive of seeing a single desk for selling grain, which is the Canadian Wheat Board, and that the Wheat Board would be the agent or representative of producers overseas. And he comes out of a meeting where the chief grain buyer says, basically repudiates the model. 
and just says it's been a long time since I've seen a representative of the grain producer. I don't want to see your government sales guys from the wheat board anymore. I want to meet my actual supplier, which is the farmer. And so this rocked the the core of the relationship between the wheat pool and its membership and farmers in general, and the wheat pool and the wheat board. Uh, so the pool owned as a co-op by producers, the wheat board owned by the government, the federal government. And, uh, you know, it would, it would be fair to say that, that uh, in context, looking back, this may have been one of the pivotal bellwether moments of, that led to the ultimate demise of the Canadian Wheat Board. But, you, you know, I don't think I read it that way at the time. I mean, clearly it was a significant set of events that occurred. It was surprising uh, and that it rocked uh, Milt, who's now passed away, but, it, you know, it rocked him. Uh, and, and Milt was a, an accountant by background, not a political guy. I mean, he was just a business person. And, uh, you know, he, I think he found uh, he was struggling with the, the whole nature of the relationship with their top customer. And uh, for me, it was quite insightful. And I always think that that may have been one of the days where we could see the end of the Canadian Wheat Board in sight because, uh, you know, it may have worked well politically back home and it may have well have worked for many in a certain political camps, but clearly it wasn't working for our top customer. And anytime you build a company that is got as its primary uh, constituent, its shareholder and not its customer, your company is probably doomed to failure. And, uh, you know, you look back, the wheat pool, wheat pool, who for many, many years was the largest company in Saskatchewan by far, it doesn't even exist anymore. It, it didn't have the staying power. And I think this was probably at the core of the problem that the wheat pool had as an entity was that it was more concerned with the interests of its shareholders than it was with the interests of its customer. So when we're sitting across the table from the customer and he basically wags his finger and gives you a scolding and a lecture, um, and willing to do that in front of the TV cameras, you know, he didn't know I didn't have the camera, so I, my camera guy didn't get the camera rolling for the entire uh, presentation or the entire uh, rebuke. But, I, you know, he was still willing to do it effectively on the record. And I can tell you that uh, in talking with Milt later, uh, and he was, the Wheat Pool was an interesting entity at the time. It had two CEOs. He was a co-CEO. So he ran the business side of the operation. The other one ran the political membership side of the operation. And uh, so when he came back, the first thing he did was just basically send every senior executive of the Wheat Pool to China. Within three months, everybody had been over uh, to get a lay of the land, to meet people, to start to uh, extend their own relationships and uh, to stop relying so much or so heavily or solely, if I could put it that way, on the Canadian Wheat Board to represent their interests abroad. So the, the primary supporter of the board in those days, along with the political arm of, of uh, you know, mostly the federal liberals, uh, was the Wheat Pool, was its primary political supporter. And there was the crack. Uh, I was, you know, we witnessed the meeting where a crack was created between the pool and the board uh, over, uh, you know, who should manage the relationship. And it all came because the customer got in our face. And I think the lesson for all of us is that, you know, always, always keep the customer's interests ahead of the, uh, uh, of the shareholder's interests. And I'm, I'm 
reminded by a line that is purported to have been attributed to uh, to Sam Walton, uh, the founder of Walmart, who said, when somebody asks me a question and I don't know the answer, I go to the store uh, because that's where the customers are. And I ask them and I ask them because they got all the money. And uh, so, you know, those with the money will call the tune. And uh, so even for Walmart, though, you know, one of the largest companies on the planet, uh, you know, that was still holy for them. That was sacred. It was that uh, that relationship with the customer is paramount. And many times when you get government involved in business enterprises, the political considerations start to override the consumer or customer uh, considerations. And I uh, argue that those companies that do that uh, tend to see their future is quite limited. So I just look back on that meeting and you think that was like, it was cool uh, for a reporter because it had some fireworks and crackers to it. But then you look back 10, 15, 20 years later and you say, hmm, that perhaps was uh, an opportunity to be in a place at a moment in time when one of the great cracks in the uh, in the wall appeared, uh, the the wall didn't crumble till later. But you could see that the foundations were now under stress, and and to have been there to witness it was really quite remarkable. So this brings me to a question that I'm hoping you can answer, which is. When we look at the lessons learned from that and how we deal with international trade now and building relationships, Saskatchewan has invested a lot of money and time in having representatives in different parts of the world, but it's not in the same model as you've explained from this story. It's very much that advocacy of a sector and and we can look at you know the the expansion into into europe and into asia of having local offices for people who aren't really au fait explain to them that advocacy piece that we see today as being a very different model sure a couple of points on this uh one is because saskatchewan in its roots you know as we grew up we tended to rely very heavily on government to uh, uh, provide many of these solutions. these uh, We use government agencies, marketing boards, agents. And uh, so we had always somebody between us and the customer. And there's a lesson in, in that for all of us and that uh, don't abdicate uh, that responsibility in your business, in your en- enterprise. In any business, we have two sides to it. One is we produce a good or a service. And on the other side, we sell that good or a service. And if you take one of them, the sales part, you put that, you know, put that hand behind your back. You've just abdicated half your business. And as a consequence, you get stunted. And I would argue that Saskatchewan through, uh, you know, much of the, the second half of the last century was very much in a stunted mode because we had abdicated responsibility to market ourselves. So here we are now in this century trying to figure out how do we elevate our profile and our name. And I encourage that kind of stuff. I'm a big supporter of it. I think that's the only thing you need to do. You know, nothing happens till somebody makes a sale. So we've gone through a couple of iterations of this back in the 80s. Uh, we had opened uh, three, uh, three or four trade offices around the world. We had one in New York who was headed by a guy named Mike Cohen. Mike was a spectacular sales guy, never lived in Saskatchewan. He was a New Yorker, but he was one of the greatest champions of Saskatchewan I ever encountered. I had an opportunity to take him up north fishing, for example, and, you know, just to listen to him talk about 
just effuse about Saskatchewan. And here's a guy, you know, born and bred London and New York. And, uh, and so to be such a champion, it was spectacular. Then we opened offices. We had one in Hong Kong. We had one in London. We had one in Minneapolis. The London one had been there forever. It was a longstanding tradition that came out of the Commonwealth where uh, uh, in the old days, all the, the British government would put a trade commissioner in all the provincial capitals. And we, all the provincial governments, would appoint someone to be in London. So he was not our high commissioner, but he was a commissioner of some kind. Uh, back in those days, it was a fellow named Paul Russo, who was a retired cabinet minister, uh, Regina car dealer guy who had ended up in London. Uh, we had uh, the Hong Kong office, and that was staffed by a, a former provincial cabinet minister, uh, Graham Taylor. And then we had the Minneapolis office that was uh, headed by a former provincial cabinet minister, Bob Andrew. So we had three retired politicians who were doing this thing. And I would argue, while well-intentioned, we're not sales guys to the extent that Mike Cohen was. And so those offices really didn't produce as much as New York did. So in austerity days of the 90s, the three, uh, the, all four of those offices effectively were closed. And now uh, Brad Wall and now Scott Moe, and Scott Moe particularly has really become aggressive on this, has decided that, no, we do need to have representation abroad. And, and you see it in a political context that there's criticism of this because, oh, you know, it's just uh, opportunities for cabinet ministers and the premier to take junkets around the world and that kind of stuff. Well, as someone who's participated in some of these junkets, I've seen what happens on these things. And, you know, in many countries around the world, the role of government, uh, if, if your business has got support from the government, that gives you stature. And uh, so I would argue that in a province where 70% of our economy is predicated on trade, if we've got cabinet ministers and premiers who are not traveling, that is really what the reason for political uh, criticism, not for traveling. I think we should be encouraging all of our ministers to spend more time on the road uh, championing the Saskatchewan story abroad. So when I look now, we've got, I think, seven offices that we're working on, all in strategic markets around the world. I think it's just excellent. And it, this is really a part of a project that comes from, uh, what can I call it? You know, we're really filling the hole that we had left by 50 years of not doing that. As a consequence, Saskatchewan was out of sight, out of mind. We were underinvested in, underdeveloped. I mean, there's a reason land prices here are cheaper than anywhere else, these kinds of things. Because if you subscribe to the theory of buy low, sell high, this is the time for us to get investment. Buy low, because Saskatchewan's still very attractively priced in a global context. And we need to be out promoting that and espousing it. And so when I see us opening uh, offices that become links and corridors for Saskatchewan business people to uh, see opportunity, I think that's just excellent. And when we speak uh, in, in a subsequent episode, uh, episode uh, of Saskatchewan Matters, I think we're scheduled for this one for two weeks from now, uh, I'm going to talk about the role of the uh, the office in Shanghai and how you know, it, it afforded me an opportunity to meet some Chinese business people who really provided a, a remarkably different context about how Saskatchewan is viewed internationally and the opportunities that come from that and how we're actually seeing some of those things take shape right now. So there's a teaser for you. I'm very much looking forward to that, Paul. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to listen to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. 
do share the insights that power Saskatchewan with your friends and colleagues. Saskatchewan Matters is proud to be a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network.